The Martin Handelside aircraft story begins in 1908, just 60 years ago. Now, this photograph isn't quite contemporary. It was taken about 1914, appeared in flight on 25th April 1914. Martin is on the left, Handelside on the right. It was more or less inevitable that these two should meet. Martin was born in London in 1883, and um, I'm very happy to say he's still alive. He was educated at Wellington College and the Central Technical College in London. Talented engineer, he built in 1900 with a friend two motorcycle engines from designs in, in, a, in a magazine, English Mechanic. They fitted these engines to their push bikes on the handlebars with a belt drive to the pulley on the front wheel. And Martin toured Germany on his in 1901, so it must have worked. Um, after gaining practical experience in locomotive engineering works in Glasgow and with Allens of Bedford, he took up in 1903 a position with Libby's Extract Factory at Freibentos in Uruguay and stayed there until 1906. When he came back to England, he linked up with his friend of the 1900 motorbike, who was one of the Trio brothers. Together with the other Trio brother, they formed a firm of Trio and Martin, manufacturing the T&M three-jet carburetor and other automobile components. <clears throat> Handerside was a Scottish engineer, basically of the traditional sort, but um, he did have certain differences in his background. <clears throat> He was born on the 30th of March, 1877, not 1875, as the aeronautics report would have us believe, nor, nor yet 1872, as C.G. Gray seemed to think. He wrote what he called the vivatuary of Handerside in 1947, which was nonsense from beginning to end. Um, Handerside was educated at Edinburgh Royal High School and, as a boy, was keen on flying kites in Queen's Park, Edinburgh. His engineering training he took in Edinburgh, not in Glasgow, not on Tyneside, but in Edinburgh. And this included marine engineering experience with Ramage and Ferguson. <clears throat> he spent two and a half years at sea as a marine engineer, and when he came back, he seemed to be attracted to the internal combustion engine. He became the manager of the Edinburgh Car Company, but didn't stay long there, for he came to London at the beginning of this century. After seven months in charge of the garage, singular, <coughs> of the London General Omnibus Company, <coughs> he went to the firm of Friswell's and then on to the Mass Car Company, where he stayed for two years. He was a remarkably capable practical mechanic, an absolutely brilliant man with his hands, given an idea he could translate it into something concrete um, almost instantaneously. Martin was, was more of a theorist, excellent mechanical understanding and experience, and he had a very scientific grasp of his profession. The two men met because Handerside had designed a new kind of carburetor, and he'd taken it along to Trier and Martin to try and interest them in it. Well, it seems that Martin wasn't terribly impressed by the carburetor, but he was deeply interested in all that Handerside had to say about the performances of the Wright brothers and the French pioneers who were then at work. And from this um, sparked their interest in flying. In 1908, they designed and built a monoplane. I'm very sorry, I haven't got a photograph of this one to show you. The only picture one can find, as far as I know, is in a book called The Aeroplane Speaks. If you look at plate 11 at the back, you'll see it there. This monoplane had a 12 to 14 horsepower Beeston Humber car engine that um, Martin and Handerside had um, souped up a bit. This weighed 200 pounds, and they'd persuaded it to, to deliver 29 horsepower. 
Although it was, um, of course, a water-cooled engine, it was to be run in the monoplane without water, without a radiator, because they didn't expect to achieve anything more than very short hops. There was a three-bladed metal layer screw which had padded legs. This first Martin Henderside was built in the ballroom of the Old Welsh Harp, a pub only a mile or so from some land by a, what was then a very ill-surfaced road, Collindale Avenue, that was to become Hendon Aerodrome a few years later. Of that first Martin Henderside aircraft, aeronautics said this, When at last the structure stood complete, the machine was wheeled out into a neighboring field. The engine was duly started, but had scarcely begun to run when, with a great clatter, the propeller tore apart, lifted the motor clean out of the machine, and prematurely ended the life of this first of a long series of memorable monoplanes designed and built by Martin Henderside. According to published reports of the pre-war period, they next went, at some indeterminate date, to, uh, I quote, the north of England, where another monoplane was allegedly built. This just isn't so. What happened was that the first monoplane was rebuilt, was taken to Barking Creek, and there it ran to and fro on the marshes without doing very much that could be called flying. Rather surprisingly, out of the blue, the partners were offered a contract to give a demonstration of flying at Halifax. They accepted, they packed the monoplane into a crate, and off they went. Martin was to uh, be the uh, pilot. Now, the aircraft suffered quite extensive damage in transit. The railways were no better then than they are now. They managed to drop the thing. Uh, and the partners were, were taken aback, further taken aback, to find that their flying ground at Halifax was to be the highest point of the local golf course. And the local worthies had put up a large tent there to be their hangar. All this was so positioned that if Martin had in fact got the thing airborne, he would have stood a very good chance of having to come down in a built-up area immediately below the golf course if anything had gone wrong. Of course, something would have gone wrong. They set about repairing the damage to the aircraft and tested the engine, and this is probably the origin of this myth that a second aircraft was built in the north of England. The repairs took them several days, and then a providential gale blew the tent down and wrecked the aircraft, so Martin's valuable neck was not put at risk. The two are next heard of early in 1910, when they became the first permanent tenants at Brooklands, and they initially took up the residence there in the first shed that had been built at Brooklands for aeronautical purposes. This was the shed that had been put up in 1909 to house Louis Poulin's farman, La Gipaette, and he came over to give demonstration flights in the autumn of that year. It had a history of its own. It subsequently became the famous Bluebird Cafe, and finally, in 1914, the officers' mess at Brooklands. The Brooklyn's authorities began putting up proper sheds for their aviators about the end of 1909, and Martin and Handerside took over number 12 when it was ready. Meanwhile, the very graceful Antoinette monoplane had made a considerable impact on the aviation world. Here's one on the screen, nearly Antoinette. Uh, and Martin and Handerside admired this machine very much indeed. So when the new Martin Handerside monoplane appeared at Brooklyn's in May 1910, it looked rather like a small-scale Antoinette. And what a pretty little thing it is. That doesn't quite show it in its original form, as I'll tell you. It was similar in its general proportions to the Antoinette, and it had the peculiar Antoinette control system with two wheels, one grasped by either hand for the pilot, 
The starboard wheel controlled the elevator by rotating it fore and aft. The port, port wheel worked the wing warping, and um, there was a rudder bar for the rudder. And on this, you can see the king post system of bracing, which was used on the Antoinettes, and which featured on every Martin Handerside monoplane built before the war. Now, as I said, this doesn't show the aircraft in its basic form. It began life with a Humber engine, and I strongly suspect that this was the engine salvaged from their very first machine. It had chain drive to the airscrew, and it was reported in the Aero of 24th May 1910 that it was nearly ready for trials in that form. I don't know whether it succeeded in flying with a Humber engine, but by mid-June, a 40-horsepower Jap, um, which you saw in, in that picture, incidentally, uh, with direct drive to a curvar propeller had been fitted, and Martin was reported to have got off the ground satisfactorily on Wednesday, 15th June. There he is, swinging the propeller. No chocks. The aircraft was occasionally damaged that summer, but an experimental modification was made to the wing bracing in July, and this made the monoplane uncontrollably tail-heavy, and it crashed on 30th July, and was quite badly damaged. It was flying again by the 10th of October, and Martin, we see on the left of the picture here, with Handerside on the right, um, flew it on 31st October, making, according to Flight's reporter, some good flights of about 300 yards. Poor deluded Mr. Martin. How was he to know that 50 years later, later a lot of earnest chaps were to prove that he hadn't flown at all? The um, first recorded flight of the jet-powered monoplane with Graham Gilmer as its pilot came on 2nd November 1910. He didn't like the Antoinette controls very much, and it was probably his criticism that led to a change to more conventional controls with a normal stick working the elevators and a wheel on the top of it for the warping. This had been installed by the 8th of November, but the aircraft was damaged that same day because Murphy's Law was in force as early as 1910 and somebody had put the warp wires on the wrong way around. <laughs> Fortunately, repairs like modifications were simple matters in those days and the monoplane was flying again by the 12th, which was only four days later. A few days later than that, Graham Gilmer was reported to be full of praise for the strength of the wings and the undercarriage and the aircraft's natural stability. In this modified form, the aircraft was apparently regarded as a new and separate type. For its name, Number 3 Martin Handerside was painted under the wings. At some time between 17th November and 11th December, the original Jap was replaced by another Jap, this time a 35 horsepower overhead valve engine. This came from a Blerio that had belonged to Graham Gilmer. He flew this Martin Handerside a good deal and was obviously regarded as its regular pilot. In fact, a later quotation suggests that he actually owned it. Um, as you can see, there it is with the 35 horsepower Jap and Gilmer's name painted on the rudder. Now, the Jap engine... You might also notice in this that the areas of the tail surfaces have been increased while the aircraft was modified. The Jap engine had a unique and ingeniously simple oil recovery system. Um, auxiliary exhaust ports had been drilled in its cylinders, and these slung oil out enthusiastically. This was recovered by using the pilot as a catchment surface, and a brisk rub down over a drip tray after flight was all that was needed. 
that really, of course, is the reason for that shield on the um, on the control column. It was an oil shield. Now, in some extraordinary way, it has come to be believed that this was the aircraft on which Graham Gilmer was killed in February 1912. This is demonstrably untrue. And in fact, this little aeroplane was still substantially in existence when the 1914-18 war started. About the late spring of 1911, the Jap engine was replaced by a 35-horsepower green. There it is, with its green engine and its name painted boldly under the wings. The character bending down just under the king posts is George Henderside. This installation was a short-lived one, for by 4th June it was flying again with a Jap engine. EVB Fisher was the pilot then, and despite what were described as extensive oil shields, and one assumes that they were rather more extensive than the thing we've just seen, he was still blinded by oil. Someone solemnly calculated that the rate of oil ejection was two gallons per hour. Next day, the oil shields were removed to the considerable benefit of number three's performance, but with a disastrous effect on the pilot. For, according to flight, Owing to a solid stream of oil, the pilot is quite unable to see in what direction he is going. Of course, the wheels turn full circle and pilots don't see where they're going nowadays. They're not allowed to. That same evening, 5th of June, 1910, Latham crashed his Antoinette onto the roof of the Martin's Handerside shed, which by that time was shed number 29. And this is a portrait of Latham's Antoinette and number 3, but you can't see number 3 because it's inside the shed, where it was damaged by falling timber. Now, it's very difficult to be sure whether the little number three was ever flown again, for the press references of the time are extremely vague, both in designations and descriptions. If it did fly again, I don't think it flew very much. In the issue of May 1913, Aeronautics reported, the little monoplane, once the property of the late DG, that is, D. Graham Wilmer, is to be reconstructed and utilized as a school machine. But this was never done, and the last known report of the aircraft appears in Aeronautics for August 1914, which stated that the aircraft might to this very day be seen for the greater part intact in the partner's sheds, August 1914. But obviously it would be unlikely to survive long after the outbreak of war. But we must go back to the early months of 1911. A report in the era of 8th March suggested that at least two new Martin Handelside monoplanes were under construction. In general outline, said this report, they resemble the old Jap engine monoplane, but are to be considerably larger as they are two-seaters. The first one will be flown by a well-known biplane flyer and will be fitted with a gnome engine. One suspects that this report may reflect an early instance of Martin and Henderside's practice of making everything in duplicate. The subsequent reports mention only the Type 4B or B4, as it's called on the placard you can see in this picture, that was exhibited at the Olympia show in March 1911. This had a 50 gnome, and the well-known biplane flyer for whom it had been built was Tom Sopwith. It was almost certainly the most elegant aircraft of Olympia that year, and um, its beautiful workmanship won it a great deal of praise. It hadn't been possible to find out just how much flying the Dragonfly did with the gnome engine, but again, it seems rather doubtful that this aircraft flew very much in that form. Tom Sopwith had it out on Easter Monday, 17th April 1911, that damaged the wing on landing. Now, it's been said that the Dragonfly was later fitted with a 40-horsepower jet and a 40-horsepower clergy. But I've been unable to confirm this. 
And both alleged installations seem highly improbable to me, for the aircraft obviously needed more rather than less power. Um, it seems that these references are probably confusions with number three. The first, direct confusion. The second, a wrong identification of the green engine in number three. And in fact, by about mid-June 1911, the Gnome had been replaced by a 65-horsepower Antoinette an engine that had been supplied to the partners by Hubert Latham, who had admired the little number three and offered to give them an engine if a suitable Martin in Handerside design could be produced for it. The Antoinette engine was a, a quaint thing. It had no throttle, the petrol was injected directly into the inlet pipes by a variable stroke pump, and such control as it had was by means of the ignition advance in the tarp. This means that it more or less ran full out all the time, but that didn't matter very much because all the engines had to run full out to keep whatever they were attached to airborne. The partners had a great affection for the Antoinette engine, and the Antoinette engine Dragonfly was flown by O.C. Morrison, Graham Gilmer, E.V.B. Fisher, and apparently Gustav Hamel. By mid-July, the wings had been completely rebuilt, but um, it crashed quite badly on the 23rd of August, and I couldn't then find any later reference to it. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find a photograph of it with the Antoinette engine. Again, there had been reports of two new aircraft under construction. The era of May 11, 1911 said, Martin and Handerside have in hand a couple of monoplanes similar to the beautiful machine they showed at the Aero Show. But by September, both flight and the aeroplane agreed that a new Martin Handerside monoplane, singular, was nearly complete. The new aircraft made its first flight on or about Monday the 13th of November 1911 with Tom Sopwith at the controls. Graham Gilmer flew it for the first time on 2nd December in a very gusty wind, and Gordon Bell also made his first flight on the Martin side three days later. He was reported to be immensely pleased with the aeroplane. The magazine, The Aeroplane, hailed this as the magnificent Martin side, and it certainly was a thing of beauty in those days. The fuselage, again, had the near triangular cross-section, not a perfect triangle because there were two bottom lanterns, although they were very, very close together. Its lanterns were of English ash, and plywood gussets were fitted about the spaces to eliminate any need for wire cross-bracing. The undercarriage, by the standards of the time, was remarkably well engineered. Bungee shock absorbers mounted vertically on the central pylon, and it was a very deep job indeed. Handerside soon mastered the Antoinette engine, and by careful tuning he persuaded it to give a bit more than the nominal 65 horsepower. But unfortunately, production of Antoinette aircraft and engines ceased about the end of 1911, and the partners particularly deplored the loss of these very fine engines. Somehow they contrived to spin out the life of the Antoinette engines that they had until the summer of 1914, and they obviously had acquired a number of them. But misfortune, much worse than the drying up the supply of Antoinette engines, was just round the corner. Apparently in an attempt to provide Martin and Handerside with some of the publicity that they never bothered to seek for themselves, Gilmer decided to make a flight from Weybridge to the city of London via the Thames. I'm not quite sure whether he thought what he was going to do when he got to the city of London, but this was his magnificent idea. The Antoinette-powered Martinside 
had been fitted with new wings early in 1912, and Gilmer tested it on the 13th of February. Just after 11 o'clock on Saturday the 17th, he took off from Brooklands and set course for London. For reasons that have never been adequately explained, the aircraft crashed in the old deer park at Richmond and Gilmer was killed. Now, that picture of the wreckage clearly establishes the nature of the aircraft in which poor Gilmer was killed. It was obviously the one that you saw on the previous slide. Eyewitnesses of aircraft crashes are notoriously unreliable, and they were even more unreliable in 1911. Those who were interviewed in this case claimed to have seen the left wing break up in the air, but all the bracing wires were reported to have been found intact, and such was the reputation of Martin Handerside workmanship that a great deal of doubt was expressed on the reliability of the eyewitnesses' statements. There were at the time fairly widespread reports of abnormal turbulence, and this prompted the belief that the bumpy conditions might have caused the accident. Indeed, they might. Gilmer was only 400 feet up immediately before the crash. There's a third possibility that's never been mentioned before, but I, I think one can now speak of it without hurting anyone. Sometime after Gilmer's death, Martin learned that he had been subject to occasional blackouts or fainting um, attacks. Who knows? Following the fatality, Martin and Handerside subjected wings to static loading tests. Not only had they, they suffered the appalling loss of their great friend Graham Gilmer, but they had a government order in prospect and they'd entered an aircraft in the military trials that were to be held at Lark Hill in August 1912. These static tests proved that the wing structure had a factor of safety of about five, which by the standards of the time was considered to be ample. Nevertheless, in the next Martin Handerside monoplane, they adopted a new type of construction in the wings for the introduced box spars. Each spar had two ash longitudinals connected by plywood webs, and they satisfied them, Martin and Handerside satisfied themselves by exhaustive tests that these were stronger than the more conventional one-piece spars. They still stuck to the King Post bracing. 65 horsepower Antoinette with the usual condensers along the fuselage flanks. I'm not quite sure whether this is really the, um, the first of the two monoplanes supplied to the RFC. I rather suspect it's the second, but it's very difficult to prove. The first RFC monoplane, whether it was this one or another, flew at Brooklands for the first time on 27th June 1912 with Gordon Bell, but um, apparently some time elapsed before it was delivered to the RFC. There it is on the left of that picture, quite definitely this time, this is the first monoplane supplied to the RFC. Uh, being flown in the third aeroplane handicap race at Brooklands on Saturday, 15th July, 1912. Gordon Bell at the controls again, but he had to retire because a water connection went west. On the 5th of July, Captain E.B. Lorraine and Staff Sergeant R.H. Wilson of the RFC were killed when the Newport monoplane spun in from 400 feet. This was a nail in the coffin of any military Martin Handerside monoplanes but it was the first of the series of accidents involving monoplanes that led to Colonel Seeley's edict of September 1912, banning the flying of monoplanes by the military wing of the RFC. At the time of that accident, work was well advanced on the Martin Handerside entry for the military trials. This was a big monoplane, 42 feet in span, that could carry a useful load of about 550 pounds. Its engine was a disastrous choice. 
It's a French engine, a Chenu, nominally of 75 horsepower, driving rather a massive um, four-bladed air squid, I think you can see in the picture. Rather oddly, this aircraft was given in one or two places the type number 4C, but I think this is pretty doubtful. It certainly wasn't closely related to the Dragonfly, which was the type 4B or B4. Although it promised well in its initial trials at Brooklands, its engine gave endless trouble at Lark Hill and was far heavier than had been expected. According to one report, the excess weight was so great that the position of the wings had to be changed, and, and this rather spoiled the aircraft's flying characteristics. So intractable did the Chenu engine prove to be that um, the Martin Handerside was virtually unable to take any significant part in the trials. The only other Chenu-powered entrant, one of the two Coventry Ordnance Works biplanes, had equally bad luck, and these engines became objects of derision at Lark Hill, and they were dubbed the Chenu engines. The witty French pun. Um, this photograph illustrates the kind of ignominious uh, situation in which the Martin Handerside frequently found itself being towed back behind one of the, the Peterson monoplanes. But it did fly, and there's a picture to prove it. Very nice looks too in the air. Um, reverting to the first Antoinette-powered monoplane for the RFC just for a moment, it was flown at Lark Hill during the military trials, but as a non-participant. It continued to be flown there for a short time after the trials, and Fred Raynham flew it on the 5th of September. In the case of the military trials monoplane, the partners had given up the Chenu as a bad job as early as 9th August, and to get the time scale right, I should tell you that the military trials started on the 1st of August and ended on the 27th. They apparently considered the possibility of replacing the Chenu with a Renault, but I haven't been able to confirm that this was done. By 27th September, it had been fitted with a 65 Antoinette and was being flown by Edward Peter. He was Peter the painter, his brother was Peter the monk. Uh, this, this again is a rather un uncertain aircraft. I think it's possibly the military trials monoplane with the Antoinette in place of the Chenu. And the position of the tail skid does rather suggest this. Though the very first aircraft by the RFC had its tail skid in about that position at one time at least. Um, what I have been completely unable to do is to confirm that the military trials monoplane ever had as has been said, first an 80-horsepower Dancet Gilet, later a 120-horsepower Ostradaimler. These are almost beyond any question confusions with a later monoplane, as we shall see. Peter the Painter continued to fly the re-engined military trials monoplane during October 1912 and made one or two cross-country flights that month. He made a false landing on the 24th of October in the dusk. The aircraft overturned and it was reported to be extensively damaged. An almost identical aircraft had been completed at about this time, and it may have been the monoplane that Peter was flying on Saturday 9th November, when, according to contemporary reports, he, whilst finishing a magnificent spiral volplane, made a miscalculation and had a fall, but was luckily unhurt, the only damage done being to the machine. A magnificent phrase, made a miscalculation and had a fall. He was flying again, presumably in the same aircraft, on 17th November, and he flew it to Farnborough on the 19th, where it stayed for some time. It may, in fact, have been the second Martin Handerside order for the RFC, for in spite of the monoplane ban, the order for this second RFC aircraft hadn't been cancelled, 
and Flanders monoplanes were accepted for the RFC as late as 8th November and 4th December. One really wonders what on earth the Treasury was thinking about, but they've learned a few tricks since then. Flight reported on Saturday, 7th December, Mr. Handerside was testing the engine of the latest Martin Handerside monoplane before handing it over to the War Office. Peter had been flying a Martin Handerside at Farnborough on the 3rd, 4th and 5th, probably the same aircraft. He was subsequently reported to be flying the latest Martin Handerside at Brooklands on Sunday the 15th, and it's just possible that this was a different aircraft. You can see the confusing lack of precision and differentiation in these reports. It's extremely frustrating to the would-be historian. This aircraft was illustrated in flight for 4th January 1913 and was most probably one or other of these two. It was either the machine supplied to the RFC or the other one, the latest Martin Henderside. I think it's more likely that it was in fact the second aircraft. It's been called a Martin Henderside military monoplane, but I think this is very doubtful. Although it was very similar in appearance to the aircraft delivered to the RFC, it had enlarged elevators and a revised system of shock absorbers in the undercarriage. At um, ten past nine on Christmas Eve, Peter took off from Brooklands, flying a Martin Henderside monoplane with a 65 horsepower Antoinette. It may well have been this aircraft. His objective was Edinburgh, which he hoped to reach non-stop in four and a half hours. But just over three hours later, after he'd covered 250 miles, the aircraft crashed near Marsk in circumstances remarkably similar to those in which Gilmer's machine had gone down ten months earlier. Peter was flying low in extreme turbulence when his aircraft crashed, and he, unfortunately, was also killed. At the investigation conducted by the Public Safety and Accidents Investigation Committee of the Royal Aero Club, it was stated that the aircraft had been built in November 1912. The committee's finding was that the wings had collapsed, but this brought a very vigorous rebuttal from H.P. Martin. Peter's brother, who knew something about aircraft, because the two of them had built a monoplane of their own in 1910, um, had examined the wreckage, and he, earlier, before the report came out, affirmed that there was no evidence of wing failure in flight. Martin himself believed that Peter was attempting to land at Marsk when violent turbulence near the cliffs brought the aircraft down. This is not unreasonable. He must have been very tired after flying 250 miles in rough conditions in a warping wing aircraft. And the wing loading was extremely light. These two fatalities and the War Office ban on monoplanes did nothing to shake Martin and Handerside's faith in their basic design. The monoplane that was exhibited at Olympia in February 1913 was basically the same as its immediate predecessors, but, as you see, it had fabric over the rear half of the fuselage. There was no wire cross-bracing in the fuselage. The plywood-covered front half didn't need any, and the rear half, as on earlier Martin Handersides, was liberally gusseted with plywood where the spacers met the lingeries. Uh, an interesting feature of this aircraft was the quite liberal use of duralumin for metal parts and fittings. Quite a lot of it was used. Apparently, the partners were still seeking a suitable engine. This time, they fitted an 80-horsepower Le Viator, which is a water-cooled V8, like the Antoinette. This, incidentally, probably explains the first half of the confusion about the engines allegedly fitted to the military trials monoplane, for the 80-horsepower Le Viator and the 80-horsepower Doncet Gilet were one and the same engine. I don't think this has perhaps been properly realized. 
The Leviator embodied the Danset Gilet system. It had concentric valves, the inlet valve lying within the exhaust valve. But it was a disappointment as an engine and didn't provide enough power. So it was replaced by a 120 Osterdaimler in April. And here I think we have the explanation of the second half of the confusion with the military trials machine. <clears throat> this was Martin and Handerside's first acquaintance with the Osterdaimler engine. And the re-engined aircraft made its first flight on 8th May, flown by Gordon Bell, whom you see there in the cockpit. The new engine, <clears throat> with its considerably, uh, considerably greater power, gave the aircraft a very good performance. Its speed was reported to be about 82 miles per hour. Meanwhile, one of the monoplanes delivered to the RFC had been in the news again. In March, it had been reported to be languishing in a tent hangar at Farm Burn was apparently damaged. On the 12th of March, in the House of Commons, Mr. Johnson Hicks asked the Secretary of State for War whether any of the Flanders, the Perdesin, and Martin Handerside monoplanes delivered during the past four months for the military wing RFC are in flying order. If so, how many of each? Colonel Seeley replied that all were in flying order. But a list of RFC airplanes published on 1st May 1913 showed one Martin Handerside monoplane as under ban. One of the two RFC Martin Handersides was taken to Shubury Ness, liberally shot at, and then sand-tested to destruction. And as we all know, half a century later, the same sort of thing is going on at Shubury Ness, and the targets are still aircraft that our flying services should have had if it weren't for the politicians. Um, with um, monoplanes denied to the military wing, it's perhaps not surprising that in June 1913, Gordon Bell flew this aircraft to Eastchurch, and from the 3rd of June he flew almost daily with officers of the naval wing as passengers. One of these was Commander um, C.R. Sampson. Perhaps it was hoped that the Admiralty might become interested in the aircraft. Gordon Bell flew back to Brooklands on 13th June with Lieutenant J.R.B. Kennedy, R.N., as his passenger. Came over Weybridge at rooftop height, and when he got to Brooklands at about half past five, he proceeded to beat the place up making tight vertical turns at naught feet. On one of these, the mountainside stalled and went in, and Kennedy was killed. Gordon Bell was injured. Whether this fatality affected the Admiralty's attitude to the mountainside isn't known, but they certainly didn't buy any, despite the complete exoneration of the aircraft by the Accidents Investigation Committee. The fault was entirely Gordon Bell's. The Martin Handerside workshop at Brooklands went on building monoplanes in the summer of 1913, but once again we come up against confusion in the reports. Just at this particular point in the Martinside history, the combined efforts of all the reporters are infuri infuriatingly imprecise. Aeronautics reported in September 1913 that a Martin Handerside hydro monoplane was under construction described in some detail the undercarriage, which was to have a large, stepless, central float mounted on the pylon that the undercarriage uh, wheels were normally attached to, and there were to be outboard floats on the lower ends of the king posts. The aeronautics report also stated that ailerons were to be fitted instead of wing warping for lateral control, and this was really quite a departure for Martin and Handerside. Flight, on the other hand, on, in its issue of 23rd August, reported that the aircraft had just been completed, was ultimately to be flown as a land plane, but for the time being had a normal wheel undercarriage. Flight made no mention of ailerons. 
And later reports in that same journal recorded excellent flights of the Martinside water plane with its wheel undercarriage, made by Harold Barnwell on 11th and 13th September. The aeroplane, on the other hand, simply doesn't mention a Martinside float plane at all. But it does report an event that neither of the other two um, magazines reported. This was a crash of a new Martin Handicide, Great Scotland were all new Martin Handicides every time they ran up against them, on 6th September, during a flight with Barnwell at the controls, and both mags gave out and the machine side-slipped into the sewage farm, being badly damaged. Much sympathy with partners over bad luck. Well, was this aircraft repaired in time to be flying by the 11th of September? Were there in fact two aircraft in existence at this time, a standard monoplane and a float plane? And was one cannibalized to restore the other to airworthiness? Or were there spares? Who knows? Possibly the aerial derby of 1913 provided a spur to repairs, replacements, or cannibalization for a Martin Handerside monoplane with a 120 Austral Daimler, pilot Harold Barnwell, had been entered for that race, which was flown off on Saturday the 20th of September. Martin Handerside had racing number 12, and there it is on the screen, a very, very beautiful airplane indeed. It had plywood sides on the fuselage with only a small fabric area on each side. Now, could this have meant that this was the fuselage of the float plane, I wonder? Still with a wheel undercarriage? Its immediate predecessor and successor both had fabric covering on the rear fuselage, so this was a very different um, animal in between. Whatever it was, it put up a brilliant performance in the aerial derby and came second to Gustav Hamel's frightening little clipwing Moran Saunier at an average speed of 72.39 miles per hour over the 95-mile circuit. And there is Harold Barnwell with the Martin Handicide. He continued to fly it for several months. On 13th November, its speed was measured and found to be 89 miles an hour, and the partners persisted, modifying wing sections and putting different air screws until by 21st December it was reg regularly doing 90 miles an hour over the measured 1,000 yards course of Brooklyn. But of course, aeronautics had to go and create more doubts by reporting in its November issue that work on the water bus is at a standstill at present but she will probably make a sudden and startling appearance in the near future. But as far as one can now establish, she never did, unless she contributed at least some components to the ultimate Martin Handerside monoplane, which was reported to be complete by 7th February 1914, and was flown by Barnwell two days later. Now, this aircraft, as you can just see, I think, had tie rods between the lower ends of the king posts. But, because I wouldn't suggest for a moment that this is any kind of proof that these were there to provide attachment points for outboard floats. What did earn mentions in the press were the careful fairing of the central pylon. Actually, I don't think it's fitted there. Yes, it is. Um, and the good streamlining of the engine curling into the top decking. This picture of a supremely elegant aeroplane, I think, does something like justice to its exceptionally handsome lines. At that time, both in looks and in workmanship, the Martin side was quite without peer. And um, this despite the almost stubborn retention of King Post bracing. This one is interesting in, in a small way because it had what was perhaps the first air stair. It had a folding ladder to let the pilot and passenger get aboard. It was rather a lofty object. 
Um, this let down on the port side and stowed away in a neat locker behind the pilot's cockpit. Another advanced feature was the construction of the tailplane, which had duralumin frame. Now this last monoplane continued flying right up to the outbreak of war. First of all in the hands of Barnwell, but later it was mostly flown by Vincent Waterfall and Robin Skeen. It was tested at Farnborough in April 1914, but didn't do very well because its Austro-Daimler uh, chose to throw a temperament that day. And it was back at Farnborough in May. This photograph, in fact, was taken at Farnborough on 30th May 1914. It took part in various races at Brooklands, but by the middle of June it had been fitted with new wings. These, apparently, were considered to be not so good as the originals, however, and I don't really know quite how much flying it did with them. They may have taken them off and put the originals back on again. On the 2nd of August 1914, with war only 48 hours away, Waterfall and the Martinside were at Shoreham. He had to go back to duty with the RFC, but he had to leave the aircraft behind because it was too windy to fly it. Some, a few days after the war had um, started, Flight reported that the Martinside had been bought by visiting officials. They didn't specify whether it was War Office or Admiralty. One suspects Admiralty. Uh, together with Jack Alcock's Sunbeam-powered Farman and the Avril 504 seaplane. But I haven't been able to uncover any official record of military use or naval use of this aircraft. In all probability, I, I would think that um, the excellent 120 Austro-Daimler would be um, removed for use in another aircraft, perhaps regarded as being rather more warlike. Uh, I must apologize for jumping backwards and forwards in time occasionally in the course of this um, lecture, but it's the only way one can keep um, threads of development going. We must go back now to the 11th of April 1914, when Flight reported that Martin and Handerside had taken over more sheds at Brooklands. Well, might they, because they had great things to do. A year earlier, on 1st April 1913, Lord Northcliffe had offered a prize of £10,000 for the first non-stop transatlantic flight. In 1914, three aircraft manufacturers designed aeroplanes to attempt this flight. In Britain, these were Martin and Henderside and Handley Page, and in the States, Glenn Curtis. The first published intimation of the Martinside design appeared in the aeroplane of 30th April 1914, where it was said to be a colossal monoplane which was to go abroad when it had completed its tests. And the report went on, Though the name of the purchaser is being kept a secret, one gathers that the machine is intended to go for long-distance records. How they did love the little mysteries in those days. Soon afterwards, it was reported that the sportsman backing the venture was Mackay Edgar. The pilot was to be Gustav Hamel, and Edgar had, had left the ordering of a suitable aircraft to Hamel, who had selected Martin and Henderside as designers and constructors. What an immense compliment that was. The aircraft was a very ambitious affair. I don't know whether you can read the dimensions there, but the span was 66 feet, the cord 14 foot 6 at the root, and it tapered 10 foot 6 at the tip. Still had king posts and the wing bracing, in spite of its size. The fuel capacity was 330 gallons. This was regarded as an awesome figure at the time. And the engine was a 215 horsepower, 215 horsepower sunbeam that must have been an early Mohawk water-cooled V-12. It was to drive a massive four-blade Lang propeller 12 feet in diameter, and there is a picture of this Lang propeller in one of the pre-war issues of the aeroplane. The fuselage had hickory longerons, 
and was covered with plywood back to the trailing edge of the wings. The central portion, which you can see in the middle of that picture, was a watertight structure, and there was emergency equipment including signal rockets and a telescopic signal mast. The undercarriage was to be jettisoned after takeoff, and the aircraft was then to land on a central skid. But once again, the worst kind of luck hit at Martin and Handerside. Gustav Hamel was lost at sea on the 23rd of May while he was flying a new Moran back from France to participate in the aerial derby that afternoon. Mackay Edgar didn't withdraw his financial support, perhaps in the hope that another pilot might be found, and work continued in the big new building specially erected for the assembly of the Atlantic monoplane. Um, this is a very recent photograph for which I'm indebted to Charles Andrews. The building is still in use and it is now the stores for the Works Engineers Department at BAC's Weybridge Works. As evidence of um, continuing progress with the monoplane, this photograph of George Handerside, complete with wide awake hat, um, with the rudder was reproduced in the aeroplane for 18th June 1914. And that same journal reported as late as 29th July, its last pre-war issue, that erection was progressing apace. The picture of, of, this, of the rudder is of interest, not merely because it shows how big the thing was, but also because it illustrates the rather broad-sectioned wooden uh, profile. Uh, this was a form of construction that Handerside still employed in the F-3 and F-4 biplanes in 1917-18. In fact, the Atlantic monoplane must have been almost complete when war broke out, and there had been rumors of negotiations for its purchase, but the war put paid to that sort of thing. The war also prevented the completion of an aircraft that would have been a complete breakaway from the Martin Handerside tradition. This was a pusher biplane that had a good deal of steel tubing in its structure, as you can see there. Unfortunately, this is about the only, this is the only picture I know of that shows the, the um, pusher biplane. By this time, Martin and Henderside had been employing Tony Fletcher as a design draftsman for some months. Fletcher was a Cambridge graduate and had been one of Handley Page's first two trainees. And it seems he joined Martin and Henderside about the time when the last Ostrodaimler monoplane was designed. And no doubt he had a hand in the design both of the Atlantic and of this pusher biplane. The pusher was designed for a 65 Antoinette again, in spite of the fact that it stopped making them in 1911, and it was to have been flown in the 1914 aerial derby by Jay Blatherwick. It wasn't ready then, and it was heard of again as an entrant in races that were to be flown at Brooklands on August Bank Holiday 1914. This seems to suggest that it was expected to be ready by that weekend, but I, again, I haven't been able to find positive proof that it was completed. Another 1914 recruit to the staff of Martin and Handerside was a young man who was later to become president of this society and whose portrait hangs on the walls of Walrus Theatre. Martin remembers him as an exceptionally fine draftsman, and this young man's entire working life was almost wholly bound up with only three firms, Martinside, the Handerside Aircraft Company, and Hawker's. The late Sir Sidney Cam's own genius has ensured his personal immortality, but one can perhaps also see that British aviation owes something to George Handerside and Helmut Martin for giving a brilliant pupil an excellent grounding in aircraft design. And when the young Sidney Cam applied for membership of this society, two of his three sponsors were H.P. Martin and G.H. Handerside. 
There was another ambitious design at about this time, but it never got off the drawing board. It was for another very large monoplane, obviously comparable to the Atlantic design. The only published reference to it in flight, 7th August 1914, is, as usual, vague. It describes the aircraft as huge and having the pilot well aft, but this time the passenger sat much further forward. Um, in the Atlantic, they were side-by-side -side seats. In this design, the passenger was to be about level with the wing leading edge. However, the design was inevitably abandoned, and all efforts were concentrated on the Martinside S1. Small single-seater, rather similar to the Sopwith tabloid. Work on this had begun in the early summer of 1914, and the prototype was well advanced when war broke out. No doubt, the partners had originally hoped to produce a racing or sporting single-seater to compete with the tabloid and Bristol Scout, with an eye possibly to official orders, for the tabloid was then already in small-scale production for the RSC. On the outbreak of war, Martin had such faith in their own design that he decided to put it into production without waiting for an official contract, and he intended to build 50. The prototype was completed within a few weeks of the war starting and was taken over by the War Office, went to Farnborough in October for evaluation, for evaluation, and this photograph was in fact taken at Farnborough on the 29th, 28th of October. Production followed. It was a conventional little biplane, wire-braced wooden airframe, plywood and fabric covering, and it still revealed something of the lines of the pre-war monoplanes, but in its details one can see the hand of Tony Fletcher. The external Duralman Fletch plates were a particular characteristic of his designs. Its resemblance to the tabloid arose largely because the 80 horsepower gnome was culled in much the same way, but it was a far sturdier aeroplane than the Sopwith. The undercarriage looks almost disproportionately massive, but in fact it made the S1 more useful to the RFC in the field than the tabloid was. Group Captain Carmichael, who was with Number 5 Squadron, which had had the SE2, the Bristol, the Bristol Scout B, a tabloid, and the Martinside, said this, The tabloid was a joy to fly, but the Martinside was the most robust, even surviving a somersault over a surprised Belgian wheelbarrow was damage only to centre section and rudder. Production was well underway by early February 1915 when this photograph was taken. By this time, the factory area at Brooklands was 35,000 square feet, still growing. Labour force about 300. The aircraft you see here are S1s of the first consecutively numbered batch, but there had been at least eight earlier aircraft that were delivered before the end of 1914. Of those you can see, 2451 was delivered to Farnborough by the 15th of February 1915, 2452 by the 26th, and 2453, 54, and 55, which isn't in the picture, by the 1st of March. They weren't quite so cramped in other parts of the Martinside works, as you can see here. This was taken on the same occasion as the last picture, and there is in it um, a relic of the um, Atlantic monoplane. That is the fuel tank of the Atlantic monoplane. The wings, you can see, are BE-2C main planes, for the company had been given an admiralty contract for a dozen BE-2Cs for delivery to the RNES. This situation led to a squabble between the War Office and the Admiralty over whose firm Martinsides were. The War Office, <laughs> War Office must have won because Martinsides didn't build any more BEs and the S-1 remained in production for the RFC. No squadron ever had S-1 as its exclusive equipment, but on the Western Front, Numbers 1, 4, 5, 6, and 16 squadrons each had one or two of these, and a handful of them gave limited but very gallant service in Mesopotamia in 1915.
The first one to fly in Mesopotamia was in fact flown by Captain H. A. Peter, brother of Edward Peter, who had been killed at Mask on Christmas Eve 1912. And it was on number six squadron's S-1 that Louis Strange had that terrifying experience of being thrown, thrown out during an inverted spin, hanging on to the drum of his Lewis gun. He'd been trying to get that drum off only a few seconds before, and he was left hanging on to it. Strange didn't think much of the S-1's flying qualities. He described it as being very unstable both fore and aft, with not much aileron control. And he went on to say that its performance wasn't much better than that of the Avro 504. But it did carry a machine gun, and that was all that Strange really asked, being a warlike sort of character. The last S-1, number 5453, was delivered in October 1915. The later machines had plain V-strut undercarriages and constant cord tailplanes, and this is 5452, the penultimate S-1, at Netheravon. The intrepid aviator in this case is a certain Lieutenant C.F.A. Portal. In the late spring of 1915, a new Martin Henderside biplane appeared, two-seater with a 100-gnome monosapap, and here it is at Brooklands. This had a good deal of Fletcher influence in it, but what I haven't been able to determine is what it was intended to do. Perhaps it was hoped that it might be a high-speed, pure reconnaissance aircraft, for the passenger was in the front seat, and he must have had quite a good downward view ahead of the lower wing. This aircraft was at Farnborough on 9th June 1915, presumably for official trials. But whatever the result of these may have been, there was no production. It's not really surprising, because it would have been impossible for either of the two occupants to use a gun in any way effectively in combat. And I don't suppose the performance was very marvellous. For a Martin side, this was an unusually ugly and badly proportioned aeroplane. The undercarriage, very narrow track, could presumably have been improved, but the authorities probably felt that as 100 horsepower monosopaps were so very scarce, they would be much better employed in Vickers FB5s and DH2s, as indeed they were. The two-seater lost its own monosopap and reappeared later with an 80 horsepower Anzani, which, if anything, made it uglier than ever. It did a good deal of flying in 1916 and 17, mostly in the hands of Herbert Sykes, one-time instructor at the London Provincial Flying School, who became test pilot to the Whitehead Aircraft Company in 1916. In the summer of 1916, it was bought by a man called Stevens, C.H. Stevens, who learned to fly on it. But just how long he kept it isn't very clear, because Sykes was still using it more or less as a personal aircraft while he was with Whiteheads in 1917, and he even appeared with it in one or two films. These had such um, exciting titles as A Munition Girl's Romance, and so on. Tony Fletcher left Martinside to join the London Provincial Aviation Company Limited in the autumn of 1915, but before he left Brooklands for Hendon, he shared in the design of a new high-speed scout. Now, at that time, the day of the true single-seat fighting scout hadn't yet come, and it seems to me that this new Martinside must have been intended to conform to the old conception of a high-speed reconnaissance aircraft and was not designed as a combat aircraft. It's just possible that the new machine, the Martinside G100, was originally designed for the 100 horsepower green. I've heard this said, but haven't been able to confirm it. But when the prototype, number 4735, came out in August 1915, it had a 120 horsepower Ostradamler, driving a three-blade Lang airscrew. It had a very ugly hump over the engine and the top decking, 
And this was the sort of thing that might have been necessitated by a last-minute engine change. Indeed, if you like to use your imagination a bit, you can make the designation mean Green 100. It was tested at Central Flying School on the 8th September 1915, and it was at Farnborough later that month. After these tests, it was ordered in fairly modest quantities for the RFC. The prototype went to France on 29th October 1915 and joined number 6 squadron on the 5th of November. Production G100s, this is an early one, uh, began to appear early in 1916, and by the time they got to the front, single-seaters were expected to fight. Although it was a good airplane, the G100 was a bit too big and stable to be an effective fighter, even in early 1916. The pilot's view was pretty limited, and although a rather homemade fitting of a Lewis gun on the top wing was devised, it was difficult to reach, and the gun had to be fitted with an extension handle. Its size and its lack of agility earned the G100 the nickname Elephant, and this inevitably stuck, of course. It had a good wing area, of course, and it was a good load carrier, so it was used as a bomber. And it was in this capacity that Number 27 Squadron, the only squadron to be equipped throughout with elephants, flew the type from February 1916 until November 1917, which is a pretty fantastic record for an aircraft designed in the summer of 1915. By any standards, in that war, that was a very long time. Um, the Martinsides of Number 27 had a, a second Lewis gun. This was a free gun on a spigot mounting behind the cockpit on the port side, and it was intended to be used for rearward defense. It was rather a desperate sort of thing, but it probably does prove that the, mar the elephant was so stable that the pilot really could let go of the controls and turn around and, and fire a gun, because you did have to use two hands to fire a Lewis gun. When the 160 Beardmore became available, it replaced the original 120 horsepower Beardmore built Ostradamler in the operational elephants at least. With this more powerful engine, the aircraft was redesignated Martinside G102. And there you are. See, that rather makes nonsense of the idea that G100 might have signified Green 100. A total of 272 elephants were built, and it was used in Palestine and Mesopotamia as well as on the Western Front. One or two, in fact, were still operational with number 63 squadron at Katzvin as late as August 1919 in the operations against the Jungalis. Pilots' opinions of the elephant varied a good deal, but it was one of only three aircraft of its war to have its name perpetuated in the badge of an RAF squadron, for an elephant is the central feature of the badge of number 27 squadron. Well, as the elephant couldn't really fight, Martin and Handerside had a shot at producing an aircraft that really could. And in late 1916, they built the RG. This was virtually a cut-down elephant with a Rolls-Royce Falcon engine, 190 horsepower. The fuselage was shorter than the elephants, and the wings were reduced in span and had only single bay bracing, as you can see. Unfortunately, the pilot was put directly under the center section, and he had no useful view in any direction at all. The armament was a peculiar combination of a fixed Vickers gun on the port side with a, an unusable Lewis gun on the starboard side of the cockpit. How the NASA pilot was supposed to fire them both, goodness only knows. It was given official trials in February 1917, and it had a very good performance, 122 miles an hour at 10,000 feet. But inevitably, the pilot's view and position came in for criticism, so they revised the design. 
moved the cockpit aft, reduced the span of the lower wing and fitted twin Vickers guns in front of the cockpit. And a Falcon 3, giving 275 horsepower, replaced the Falcon 1. This was a very fine airplane indeed, with an outstanding performance. It did 130 at 10,000 feet and climbed to 10,000 in 7 minutes 20 seconds. But there was no production order. For one thing, all the Falcons that could be made were wanted for Bristol fighters, and for another, Martinsides were, by mid-1917, major contractors for the SE-5A. They built 600 SEs. And they had the production capacity to cope with orders of this size because they'd taken over additional factory premises in Woking in the autumn of 1916. Despite their preoccupation with production of the SE, Martinsides continued to design aircraft, and three new prototypes appeared in fairly quick succession in 1917. These were given designations in a series having the prefix F, um, the significance of which I, I've never really seen explained. The chronology of the F series presents one or two problems. The F1 was a two-seater built under an official contract because serial numbers were allotted for two, two prototypes, but it seems that only this one, A3933, was completed and flown. All the available evidence suggests that this contract must have been awarded by middle of 1916, and everything about the aircraft indicates fairly early thinking. It was obviously a development of the elephant, and I'm practically certain it must have embodied a fair number of elephant components, but the observer was in the front cockpit, and even by mid-1916 that was an arrangement that was unsuitable, and by mid-1917 it was completely unacceptable. The F-1 was a bigger aeroplane than the elephant, and its engine was a 250 Rolls-Royce of the kind that was later given the name Eagle. But um, if we're tempted to connect the aircraft with a letter from G.W. Williamson that was printed in flight 15 years ago, and we try to regard this as a flying testbed for the Eagle, we've got to abandon that idea because the Royal Aircraft Factory was flying Eagles in several aircraft before the F-1 appeared. The oddest thing of all is that the F-1 didn't reach Martlesham for its official tests until July 1917. And, of course, it was inevitably criticized for its poor arrangement of the crew. It had a Rolls-Royce Eagle III engine at that time. It didn't go into production, it was sent to Farnborough, and it was used there as a transport hack. It survived the armistice, but probably not for long. This is, a, I think, a fairly late photograph, and it seems to have been taken at Hendon. It shows the aircraft with a, a pair of um, unidentified uprights uh, in the front cockpit, passing through the cutout in the centre section, and um, flare brackets and navigation lights are fitted. This was definitely after the aircraft had been at Martlesham, because when it was there it was clear doped all over. As you can see here, it's um, cocky. Perhaps um, somebody hoped this might turn into a useful night fighter, I don't know. The next one in the F-series was the F-2, a fighter reconnaissance two-seater with a 200 Hispano Suiza and a much more handsome and workmanlike job than the F-1. This time the pilot was in the front seat with a fixed Vickers gun, the observer immediately behind him with a Lewis on a scarf ring mounting. And the F-2 was so compact that it was the same overall size as the RG single-seater, with which it was pretty well contemporary. There were Several points of similarity between the RG and the F-2, and the least fortunate of these was the fact that, once again, they put the pilot right under the center section, where he couldn't see anything. This aircraft was tested at Martlesham Heath in 
May 1917, actually about two months before the F1 went there. And although it had pleasant handling qualities and natural stability, the pilot's position was seriously criticized. The performance was rather poorer than that of the Bristol Fighter, which was in large-scale production anyway, and the Hispano-Suiza engine was the standard power unit of the SE-5A. Um, so everything was against the F2. But in the Martinside lineage, the interest of the F2 lies in its introduction of that particular shape of fin and rudder, and the general proportions of the aircraft with that outline of tail were to be repeated in the later designs. By this time, George Handerside was the company's chief designer in name and in fact, and one feels that in the F2, he and his team were just on the point of really making the mark. Now, this is the next Martinside design, and you can see directly, it's a directly comparable photograph with the F2, you can see the new Martinside line and proportions very clearly here. I, I, I believe this to be the F3 in its original form, when it had an experimental version of the Falcon 3, which was rated at 285 horsepower. Got a left-hand propeller, and this suggests that it may have been a direct drive version of the Falcon I. I don't know whether this is so. Um, this shows the F3 at Martlesham Heath, and was tested there in November 1917 in this form. This time, they really had hit the nail on the head, and they produced a winner. Speed at 10,000 feet was 138 miles an hour. This was November 1970. Climb to that height, 7 minutes 20 seconds, on to 15,000 feet in 12 minutes 50 seconds. And the service ceiling was 23,500 feet. Outstandingly good figures that the airboard couldn't possibly ignore. Test pilots report full of praise described the F3 as a great advance on all existing fighting scouts. It had been built as a private venture, as so many of Britain's great aircraft have been, and it bore no serial number when it first appeared, as you can see there. There's absolutely no number on it anywhere. But in 1917, somebody in an official place found it rather shocking that the aircraft manufacturers were able to build prototypes without some kind of official interference, and with a view to ensuring that scarce aircraft materials were not wasted on futile designs, at least that was their story, decreed that private venture prototypes could only be built under official licenses. Now, such aircraft were to be numbered in a special series with an X prefix. Now, apparently, the F3 came on the scene just when this procedure was initiated. For this prototype, at least, bore the number X2, as you can see here. It's of great interest because it may very well have been the first aeroplane to bear a serial number in the X series. Um, I think X1 was intended to be something designed by the Glendara Company or some obscure firm like that, but it never saw the light of day as far as I know. There's been another change in the aeroplane here because it's got a standard Falcon 3 engine this time driving a right-hand airscrew, but I'm not sure whether it is the same aeroplane as we saw in the previous slide or a second prototype. One rather suspects that the experimental Falcon proved to be a bit too experimental because it's never heard of again. Well, the official interest in the F3, uh, an order for six prototypes was given, and these were to be numbered B1490 to B1495. They were making an honest aeroplane of it now. And here is B1490 at Martlesham Heath, probably around August 1918. Again, it's impossible to be certain whether this one was X2 renumbered, because it might equally well have been a further prototype. Demand for the Rolls-Royce Falcon always exceeded the supply, and the engine was of primary importance to the Bristol Fighter production program. So as a safeguard against the shortage of Falcons, the Martinside F3 design was modified to have the 220 horsepower Lorraine Dietrich, a 
which was a French V8 engine. It's possible that one of the prototypes may in fact have been fitted with this engine because it's um, known that the Martinside company had specimens of two different types of Lorraine engines. About the only criticism of the F3 that was made in any official report occurs in one dated 3rd October 1917, which observed that the pilot's view vertically downwards was nil because he was immediately above the lower wing. This sounds rather peculiar, coming as it did at a time when all the aircraft designers in the country had been doing their utmost to give pilots the best possible view in all upward directions. But it may have had its origin in the widespread use of single-seat fighters as ground attack aircraft during the fierce land battles of 1917. In response to this particular criticism, the firm made it known that they didn't want to make cutouts in the wing routes because they knew that this would spoil performance. But Trenchard apparently had strong opinions on downward view for fighter pilots, and he made them known early in January 1918. The Air Board then asked Martinside to consider revising the design to take the 300 horsepower Hispano Suiza as a further alternative to the Falcon and the Lorraine Dietrich. And it seems probable that at the same time they asked the firm to consider reducing the cord of the lower wing as a means of improving the downward view. Martinside replied on the 14th of January 1918, proposing to revise the design to have lower wings with reduced cord and either the Lorraine or the Hispano engine. For this revised type they suggested the designation F3A. Apparently the idea of using the Lorraine Dietrich was virtually discarded in the spring of 1918 for in April, the firm was suggesting that the Rolls-Royce version should be designated F3, the Hispano-Suiza version FA3, which was probably unintentionally a faulty transcription of F3A. Eventually, the Hispano-Suiza variant was designated F4, possibly because in redesigning it, Martinside not only reduced the cord of the lower wing, but also moved the cockpit some distance out. The Clear dope finish and the lack of any serial number suggests that this might be the prototype F4, but if it is, um, rather oddly, it happens to have a Falcon engine and a left-hand one at that. Official statistics make it clear that deliveries of 300 horsepower Hispano Suizas to Britain didn't begin until very late in the war. On 31st October 1918, the RAF had only 21 300 horsepower Hispano Suizas, and of the 52 Martinside F3 and F4 that they had at that time, no fewer than 44 were in store, and there can be little doubt that they were waiting for engines. It would therefore be wholly logical to try out the prototype with an available engine. On the other hand, we can't overlook the fact that the installation bears a remarkable resemblance to the Falcon installation in the Raymore Transatlantic <coughs> monoplane of 1919. In September 1918, the F-4 was officially named Buzzard. But for the armistice, the F-4 would have been their greatest and their most brilliant aircraft. At home, it would have been the first Martinside type to be widely built by other contractors. Of the known orders for 1,550 aircraft, 450 were to have been built by Bolton and Paul, 200 by Hooper, and 300 by the Standard Motor Company. Not only this, but France and America wanted the F-4 too. Possibly the French interest in the F-4 and the Sopwith Dolphin Mark II was largely an insurance against failure or non-delivery of the Spad 17, for they had had far more trouble with the Spad 13 than is generally realized. But the Americans needed the Martinside and the Dolphin II because they had nothing else in prospect that could use the 300 horsepower Spanish engine. 
As far as I can make out, 1,500 American F-4s would have been built by Curtis. However, the war ended, contracts were cancelled. But just as the production of the Sopwith Snipe went on until March 1919, so did production of the F-4 go on for a little while, and here are F-4s in production in 1919. Um, the standard um, buzzard and this is D4263 at Farnborough on 24th January 1919, underwent the usual process of minor modifications as work proceeded. Um, the original twin galley tube radiator was replaced by a single radiator of honeycomb form, and from the 25th machine onwards, a 7.5 gallon oil tank replaced the original 4 gallon tank, and so on. But in the autumn of 1918, it was decided that a long-range version would be needed to serve as an escort fighter for the bombers of the Independent Force in 1919. On 21st October, the conversion of three aircraft was authorized, and in fact, these were the subject of a contract, separate contract, for three prototypes, H6540 At least, the first two of these aircraft were built. This is H6540 at the Isle of Grain, almost certainly about mid-July 1920, and H6541 had been at Farnborough in December 1919. This long-range version was designated F4A Buzzard Mark 1A. Not only did it have increased tankage and a modified fuel system, it also had augmented armament. This is something that we haven't really known until very recently, because there was a Lewis gun let into the upper surface of each lower wing, so it was a four-gun fighter. Of the very few F-4s that were actively used by the RAF, two went to the communication wing as high-speed couriers during the 1919 peace conference. Um, this is probably taken at Kenley. Uh, one of them set up a record flight by covering the 245-mile route in an hour and a quarter, which was very good going even with a tailwind. The interesting thing about this particular buzzard in our photograph is that, again, it has a Falcon engine, not a Spanish reason. The last Martinside wartime design was for a home defense night fighter in the RAF Type 9 category. Unfortunately, nothing's known about this, apart from the fact that it was designed to have two ABC WASP radial engines and would therefore have been the first multi-engine Martinside and the design was under official consideration at the end of June 1918. Possibly any thought of proceeding with it was abandoned when it was realized that the WASP engine was such a catastrophic failure. The decision not to put the WASP into production was taken in October 1918. Consequently, all aircraft for which it had been chosen had to be abandoned. The post-war period found the entire aircraft industry at a very low ebb indeed. Many firms ceased to exist almost overnight, but Martinside struggled on. But for the sake of tidiness, we ought perhaps to deal with the post-war F-4 history as far as it concerned the true Martinsite firm at this point. One or two F-4s appeared in post-war races. In June 1919, a Falcon-powered F-4, flown by R.H. Nisbet, came second in the aerial derby, and F-4s were regular aerial derby entrants for several years. But with spare F-4 airframes on their hands, Martinsite did their best to sell them to other nations, either in their basic form or modified. A civil demonstrator, EANM, went to Spain in October 1919, flown by Fred Raynham, and was demonstrated to the Spanish Air Force. After that, it went on to Portugal, where it was bought by British residents in Lisbon and presented to the Portuguese government. 
It was named Vasco da Gama by Lady Drummond and formally handed over by the British ambassador. British ambassador. This was a gesture that really paid off. They were back in Britain in those days. For Portugal subsequently bought a number of F4s, and there is one of them. Very nice it looks too. Spain also bought Martinside F4s, or they may have been F4A long-range single-seaters, and six of these were still in service with the Spanish Aeronautica Naval at Barcelona in 1936 when the Spanish Civil War began. Other countries using F4s were Finland and the Irish Free State. Finland had at least 37, and it's in Finland that the only known surviving complete Martinside aircraft exists today. Some of these overseas sales were probably made by the aircraft disposal company, of which we'll say more later on, um, but because they had acquired many surplus XRAF aircraft. Martinsides themselves tried to market other versions of the F-4, such as this floatplane variant, but it seemed to have no success. Nor did the F-5. In, in fact, it's very doubtful if there ever was such a thing as a genuine F-5. If you can believe the Martinside advertisement in the 1920-21 Aircraft Standard Catalogue, uh, and parts of that advertisement are hopelessly inaccurate, the F-5 was simply a, a de-armed F-4 offered as a sporting single-seater. A two-seat version was evolved, and confusingly, this was designated F-4A. To make matters even more tortuous, there were at least three versions of the F-4A two-seater. Three aircraft were civil sporting two-seaters. One of these, GEAPP, was flown by Brian Hubbard in the 1920 aerial derby. In these civil F-4As, the passenger sat in front of the pilot, but there were also military two-seat fighters of the traditional layout. These appeared with either standard single bay wings, as you see here, or with two bay wings and modified wing bracing makes the aircraft look quite different. This aircraft in the picture was one sold to Spain in 1921, and there's a Spanish markings on it. There were also new Martinside designs in the immediate post-war period. In view of the fact that the war had robbed Martin and Handerside of the privilege of being the first aircraft manufacturers to attempt the Atlantic flight, it was only right that their first new post-war design should be foreign aircraft intended again to compete for Lord Northcliffe's 10,000 pounds. They got a move on in those days because the aircraft was designed, built and flown before the end of March 1919. It was a single engine biplane, as you can see, with a 275 Rolls-Royce Falcon engine and was rather like a scaled-up F4 with two bay wings. It was to be flown by Fred Raynham, who had been Martinside's chief test pilot for much of the war, and his navigator was to be Captain C.W.F. Morgan, former RNES man. They tested this aircraft very thoroughly before it left England. It had a 10-hour flight and a 24-hour non-stop ground run, with Raynham and Morgan sitting in it throughout the 24 hours. This was to try to simulate something of what they would go through during the flight. The aircraft was christened the Raymore, um, telescoping of the names of its crew, and was shipped to Newfoundland the end of March 1919. You can just see the name on the side there and an interesting glimpse of how they refueled Kudividi. 
Quiddy Widdy was its destination. This was a field that Morgan, who made a preliminary visit in January, had selected and leased as the only area offering a reasonable takeoff run. So an extraordinary thing, but of all the firms who attempted the Atlantic con contest, Martinsides were the only firm who had the foresight actually to send somebody to Newfoundland to see whether there was a field from which they could take off. The Martinside, of course, by 1919, wasn't by any means the only contender. Um, a test flight made in Newfoundland on the 17th of April went well, but then the weather turned bad and grounded all the aircraft involved in the competition for weeks on end. And it was the 18th of May when Harry Hawker and Mackenzie Grieve were the first to get away in the Sopwith Atlantic. Raynham and um, Morgan um, scrambled very smartly and tried to take off an hour after Hawker, but um, by this time the wind had turned very turbulent and changeable, and just as Raynham got airborne, the aircraft was um, thumped back on the ground extremely hard. Uh, the undercarriage was broken, aircraft damaged, Morgan was, was really very badly injured about the face and head, and he had to go into hospital. In fact, his, his sight was um, considered to be in danger for some time. Um, but they bred them tough in those days, and the aircraft was repaired on the spot. And this was no mean feat in the middle of Newfoundland. Um, it took some time, of course, and in the meantime, Alcock and Brown got across the 14th and 15th of June. But Raynham was still determined to have a go, and although Morgan wasn't fit, his place was taken by Lieutenant C.H. Biddlecombe. And as the aircraft's original name was no longer appropriate, it was renamed, and it was called Chimera. This was a rather enigmatic choice, for the word has a number of meanings. But Chimera also crashed on the 17th of July on a trial flight. Fortunately, neither Raynham nor Biddlecombe was hurt. But Martinsides had had enough by this time, and the remains of the aircraft were packed up and sent back to Woking. However, the Atlantic aircraft did provide the basis of the design for the Type A, which was Martinsides' first commercial type. This could have either a Rolls-Royce Falcon 3, an Eagle 8, or an Apier Lion. It's very doubtful whether an Eagle was ever put into a Type A, but Falcon and Lion installations were made. This is... GEAMR, Falcon Powered Type A, which on 4th December 1919 left Hounslow bound for Australia in the contest for another £10,000 prize, this time offered by the Australian government for the first flight from England to Australia. The crew were Captain C.E. Howell and Corporal G.H. Fraser, but unfortunately, disaster again, the aircraft came down in the sea off St. George's Bay, Corfu, on 10th December and Howell and Fraser lost their lives. By coincidence, it was on that same day that Ross and Keith Smith reached Port Darwin in their Vimy. The Type A had interchangeable wheel and float undercarriages. On floats, it was properly known as the Type AS. And indeed, poor Howell, whose EAMR came down at Corfu, had intended to put floats on the aircraft at Calcutta and complete the flight um, with the aircraft as a float plane. The Type AS that you see in this picture is one of two that were brought in 1920 by Price Brothers of Quebec. These aircraft went to Canada for timber survey and fire patrol duties and were registered GCAAX, which is the one you see here, and CADG on 21st July 1920. 
This one didn't last long. It was written off in a crash at Lake Anachiwe on 18th August 1920, and the other was wrecked on 30th May 1921 at Chikutami. Um, there was a cabin version of the Taipei known as the Taipei Mark II, and, and here is the um, only British registered Taipei Mark II. This appeared in the summer of 1920. It had seats for four passengers in that enclosed cabin that you can just see ahead of the pilots. Um, four others were exported. Uh, one of these was bought by Price Brothers and was registered in Canada as GCAEA on 21st June 1921. It was to be a replacement for CADG. This one also spun and crashed at Chikutami, though it did last until 12th July 1923. At least one other Taipei Mark II went to Canada, or more precisely to Newfoundland, in 1922. It was operated by the Aerial Survey Company, which had been formed by Sidney Cotton, Sidcot Suit fame and PRU fame in the Second World War, to provide airmail service and to undertake seal spotting and prospecting operations. This was a rather an elaborate aircraft for the time. It had radio, camera, and the instruments included a magnificent thing known as the Vickers-Reed Gyro Turn Indicator. The aircraft were really beginning to get complicated. After some strenuous service in Newfoundland, the ski undercarriage collapsed and it was replaced by one taken from a DH-9. Um, another of the Type A Mark II that went abroad was the first airplane bought by the Air Corps of what was to become Aero, and it was acquired in rather dramatic circumstances. In 1922, a solution of the Irish Troubles seemed in sight, and a truce was called to allow negotiations to take place in London. The Irish sent over Michael Collins, a man who had a price of £10,000 on his head. <clears throat> he was worth as much as an Atlantic flight or a flight to Australia, you see. Um, he came over with grave misgivings because he felt that if the talks failed, he would immediately become a fugitive again and subject to immediate arrest. So, a Martinside Type A Mark II was bought as a getaway vehicle. Guess what kind of petrol it used. All went well, however, and Collins was able to fly unharried to Baldonnell on the 16th of June 1922. The Martinside was then christened the Big Fella, which was Collins's nickname, and later on the Irish Air Corps bought four Martinside F4s, whether from Martinside or the ADC, I don't know. Uh, going back to 1920 to follow the line of design development, one finds that contemporary with the two-seat sporting F4A was a very similar aircraft designated F6. According to its makers, the F6 could be used as a two-seat passenger or reconnaissance aircraft or as a single-seat fighter. It was virtually an F4 with a short span center section, modified wing bracing, and a modified undercarriage with slight forward weight on the Vs. Power unit was either a 275 Falcon 3 or a 300 horsepower Spano. But apparently only three were built. First of these was GEAPI with a Hispano Suiza, which took part in the 1920 aerial derby. It's only recently been established that this aircraft went to Canada and became GCYEQ. While it was in Canada, it was almost certainly flown as a float plane and it was still in existence on 9th October 1922. A second Canadian F-6 was completely wrecked on 25th October 1920 at Armour Heights near Toronto. It was being flown by Billy Bishop at the time, for it belonged to Bishop Barker Aeroplanes Limited, the aviation concern that he and um, 
Vark and Varka had um, started. Fortunately, Bishop escaped without serious injury. This may have been EATQ, which was um, reported as being sold abroad in 1920, but if it ever did have a Canadian registration, it doesn't seem to be known. The third and last F6 was GEBDK, which was also the last Allmart inside aeroplane. This one had, at least when this photograph was taken on 7th August 1922, a 200-horsepower Wolseley Viper engine, and it had been bought by Fred Raynham for £15. He flew it in the aerial derby as a single-seater when this photograph was taken, and as a two-seater in the King's Cup races of 1922 and 23. And there it is as a two-seater, painted bright yellow this time with black trim on wings and fuselage. This was um, Raynham's own handiwork, but all it earned was the name of Mustard Side on the aircraft. Uh, in the 1922 King's Cup race, Raynham took Sidney Cam in the front cockpit as his mechanic. This was a wise precaution because um, a water pipe broke. There was no water in the engine by the time the F-6 got to Birmingham, and Cam was able to repair the damaged water pipe during the one-hour stop. While the F-6 EBDK was the last all-Martinside aeroplane, the last all-Martinside design was the semi-quaver, the single-seat racer. And this, in March... 1920, put up a speed of 161.43 miles an hour at Martlesham Heath, which was some rather staggering speed for the time. It was displayed at Olympia, as you see it here, in July 1920, and was entered for that year's aerial derby. Frank Courtney flew it, won the race at 153 miles an hour, and celebrated by overturning the aircraft on landing. In October that year, it was repaired, wing area slightly reduced, and it flew in the Gordon Bennett race at Etampe in France. But unfortunately, its oil pump broke and it had to withdraw. In those very lean post-war years, surplus military aircraft were ten a penny, and it really was something of a miracle that Martin Sides managed to sell any new designs at all. When the RAF adopted this snipe as a standard post-war fighter, that was really a death blow for the F-4. The company tried to stay in business by manufacturing a motorcycle and sidecar designed by Martin. This was in production in 1920, but it seems to have been a fairly short-lived venture. The writing had been on the wall, in fact, at this 1920 Olympia show. Although Martin's side were bravely displaying a Type A, the dual-control sporting F4A EAQH, and the semi-quaver, uh, yet not far away the aircraft disposal company had on their stand a Martin's side F4. D4309. So towards the end of 1920, George Handerside and Hamilton Fulton resigned from Martinside Limited and set up a new company, the Handerside Aircraft Company Limited. Martinside's carried on for a while with J. Taylor Petty as the chairman. Martin continued as a director and the general manager was G. Tillman Richards, who had formerly been with Beardmore's. Their main line of business was to be the motorcycle and sidecar but they hoped for some aircraft work. But for Martin Sides, the end came early in 1924. In February of that year, it was announced that the Aircraft Disposal Company Limited had bought the manufacturing rights, the goodwill, and the entire stock of Martin Sides Limited. Martin then withdrew from aviation, but Handerside remained in the trade and continued to design aircraft, his last being the BA Double Eagle. George Handerside had one last link with the last Martinside design, though. 
1921, his new company undertook the modification of the semiquaver <coughs> to have an alveolar wing. This wing was the design of a Dutchman, A. A. Holler, who had worked away rather unproductively on an interesting parasol monoplane with a kind of trailing edge flap. This machine was known as the Varioplane, and he worked on it between 1914 and 1917. Then he conceived the angular wing, of which tremendous things were expected. The commercial aeroplane wing syndicate was formed to exploit his designs. After some early experiments with a rather primitive wing on a DH-6, they made a number of more refined wings at Sherburne and Elmer. Critics had scoffed at the alveolar concept and said it wouldn't be suitable for high-speed aircraft, so Holler decided to use a high-speed aircraft. And um, the new wings were known as racing wings, hence the choice of the semi-quaver. I've taken far too much time already, and I really can't spend any time discussing Holler's wing, but it was supposed to represent his ideal. It was carefully shaped to provide what he was pleased to call two-dimensional airflow <coughs> and embodied his system of lateral control. This consisted primarily of two slat-like spoilers on the leading edge in the same position as the alveolar feathers on a bird's wing, and that's the reason for the name of this particular type of wing. But in practice, these um, alveolar surfaces proved to be far too sensitive and had to be replaced by elements. Um, the racing wing was unusual. It was said to have no spars in the conventional stance. It had spanwise and cordwise bulkheads instead, covered with a skin of one-eighth inch mahogany planking. First wing was sent to Farnborough on 11th June 1921. It was found to be much too flexible, so they stopped work on the others and the structure was strengthened. It was either the third or the fourth wing that was fitted to the semi-quaver. The second wing was ultimately completed and was sent to the French Institut de Technique at Saint-Cyr on 21st July. It was intended to fly the Aguila semi-quaver in the 1921 Aero Derby, and Frank Courtney was to have been the pilot. He taxied the aircraft, and it was then in an earlier form than you see it here, because it still had its original undercarriage, and the CG was far higher than it should have been. So uh, Courtney found the ground-handling um, behavior rather alarming and quite wisely said he wasn't going to have anything to do with it. They put a strengthened undercarriage with greatly increased track on in August, and five days later uh, it was flown by Reg Kenworthy, whom you see in the cockpit here with his characteristic um, leopard skin or Oslo helmet. Sixteen years later, Kenworthy wrote a rather amusing account that was published in Popular Flying and made this first flight sound extremely hair-raising, which it probably was. But um, he stated that subsequent Farnborough tests proved that the factor of safety of the alveolar wing was only 1.75. Um, it seems probable that this was a bit of false memory integration. He probably confused the preliminary Farnborough test uh, with this figure because um, he certainly went on flying the Ayula semi-quaver several times in the autumn of 1921, and it was once flown by Leslie Foote, who came down and thought the lateral control was far too sensitive and didn't want to touch it again. But it was fast. On its first flight, it didn't become airborne until it was doing 110, and um, Ken Kenworthy said that it reached 175. Its high performance stimulated some official interest in it, and on 12th October 1921, there was a grand demonstration at Northolt to a very distinguished audience, including the Secretary of State for Air and Lord Trenchard. This time, an indicated airspeed of 180 miles an hour was recorded, but official interest in the aircraft seemed to evaporate, 
It was apparently abandoned at Northolt at the end of 1921, and then it seemed to rot quietly away there. The ultimate developments of Martin site designs were made by the Aircraft Disposal Company. They offered some F4s with Lundlau lobster pot radiators as alternatives to the flat frontal radiator, and towards the end of 1924, they produced the Martinside ADC-1, which was virtually an F4 with a, an Armstrong Sydney Jaguar radial of 380 horsepower. First flight, 11th October 1924 at Croydon, flew in the 1925-26 Kings Cup races, and in 1926, Latvia bought eight of these as fighters. Not a bad choice, because its speed was 163 miles an hour, and the aircraft was, in its time, faster than the RAF's contemporary Gamecocks, Greaves, Siskins, and Woodcocks. Apparently, there was to be an alternative version with a Bristol Jupiter engine and um, donut tires, but this didn't seem to get beyond the project stage. In 1926, the Nimbus Martin site appeared, very, very handsome airplane indeed, powered by the 300 horsepower ADC Nimbus engine. Two were built, flew in the 1926 King's Cup race, maximum speed 150, and um, in 1927 one of them was refined by additional fairings over the engine cylinder head and the undercarriage V-struts. But there was no sale for this type, and both the Nimbus prototypes and the original ADC-1 were scrapped in 1930 when the Aircraft Disposal Company Limited ceased trading. Well, there we are. On even the short time scale of the aircraft industry, the Martinside company was relatively short-lived. And I think that the, the two men, Martin and Henderside, had rather more than their fair share of setbacks and disappointments. This seems all the more sad when one recalls the supremely elegant pre-war monoplanes and the handsome biplanes of the war years and the superlative standards of workmanship that they set from the very earliest days of the partnership. They never accepted second best. Truly great and spectacular success always seemed to elude them, often by the narrowest of margins, but I still think they earned their full right to be remembered among the greatest of our aviation pioneers. God bless you for your patience. Well, gentlemen, I think first of all we must congratulate our lecturer on having kept our attention for such a long time. Apart from the fact of his research into these early days and the way in which he's put it over to us, uh, I doubt whether we've done it better had I, he cut it shorter, let us ask some questions. Nevertheless, I think we might have one or two short questions in spite of the time well, Mr. Chairman, Jack has the patience of his famous ancestor, the man with the spider, doing all the research. He's done a wonderful job. One or two small uh, comments. Um, interesting, you mentioned about the use of duralumin, which was at that time the biggest proprietary product. And presumably, Martin Science had the faith small variety. They used extensive light alloy, but more interesting still today, they also used all metric dimensions on their own aeroplane, not on the SE5. Those happened to be for my centers since at that time, so as what was known as a semi-skilled 
machinist at sixpence an hour in the production works, which is now, for those people who know working, is now the line works or of James Walker where they make these line packets just on the end of on the left hand side of working station. But um, this use of metric dimensions was not singular with the Malthusian company. I believe the early Bristol's also used it. It all derives from the borrowing of French designs, Vickers borrowing the REPs, Bristol's borrowing the Coanders, um, Martinside borrowing the Anton Rich, you see. And um, the other thing was, I wouldn't, I was, I rather always thought this, you know, that the F4 and F3, if you look at the rear arc of it, and compare it with Sidney Camp's hurricane of a much later date, and if you put a pointed nose on it with a spinner, I don't think you'd pay very much consideration. I know uh, Ron Lockton, I think this is a spotter's gimmick, but we used to go into his family uh, uh, when we were on the spotter and aeroplane together. And I think you'll find that they very closely approximate. And that's amazing, the, the resemblance between the hurricane profile in the side here and the F3 and F4. Um, Sidney Cam incidentally started that uh, market size in 1950. He left a builder's yard called William Watson at Ascot. He went there as an improver carpenter, found his way into the drawing office, became known in the drawing office for his propensity for studying aeroplane pictures. Any aeroplane pictures he had all over the drawing board and then got, he then got passes as an employee of the aircraft industry to go to the enemy aircraft exhibition in the Royal Agricultural Hall of And he learned a lot about aircraft detail design there and as you so rightly said he then on was after that. But the similarity of a lot of, also a lot of the detail work of Markside uh, aeroplanes was repeated in later Hawkers. I'm sure that he got ideas on the wall. Got a lot of his ideas from George Hatton, so I don't, I'm certain. I'd better not say any more, I think. Contribution. Um, I've heard Cam talk about his early days and that at this firm he did learn the importance of saving a little bit of weight here, a little bit of weight there. As we know, in his later, in his later aircraft, his famous aircraft, one of the things he always watched was the, himself, the detail parts, so that he should save weight. And I think he learnt that from Martin Side. However, I see someone else like to, yes? May I say a few words? Uh, Marcus Langley, my name. I had the great good fortune to overlap George Hanside for some years and to be his assistant and later his successor. And I learned a great deal of my own engineering experience from him and I must pay tribute to his memory. I first met him in 1928, after the period which Mr. Bruce has been talking about. He was down on his fortunes after the collapse the final collapse of the Martinside business. And he came to Handley Page uh, at Critterwood and became a section leader there. I, at that time, was a junior section leader and we were comrades. And when the DeSouta Aircraft Company was formed in 1920, beginning of 1929, he went there as chief engineer and invited me to come with him 
as uh, his assistant, and uh, old H.P. was very bitter about the pairs leaving Critton. Uh, later again, uh, when he went to the, you mentioned the BAW Eagle, he went to the uh, British Clem Company, and I went, uh, followed him there as assistant chief designer under him, and when uh, a crack came and he left, I took uh, his place. Uh, but I do want to pay tribute to the, to his amazing energy, his individuality, uh, his basic thinking and uh, his ruggedness. His ruggedness uh, appeared in one episode which he told me about. It refers back to these F4 days uh, when uh, he got utterly tired of being pestered by crowds of ministry officials, little men who knew nothing about anything but their own little bit. He used to come down to mock-up conferences, and he he called for a one number one and only mock-up conference on one of these types. He got the whole lot of them down together. He took them into the mock-up room where there was this mock-up, walked out on them, locking the door behind him, leaving a message. When they had bloody well finished, he <laughs> deal with them. <laughs> uh, there was one other characteristic he had which I would like to mention, and that was his, uh, again his individuality, he would, he thought that as long as he was a month ahead of the bloody drawing office, he was all right. <laughs> Forgive my language, but I mean, this was his, uh, with a Scottish accent. Um, he would, for example, in the Clem Swallow, the B.A. Swallow, uh, when I took over from him, I had to uh, take over this design, which was in a rather ill-formed state. And I asked, what was the wing section? I was told it was a Gottingham 387, which George had modified. Where is the drawing of it? There isn't a drawing. He chalked it out on the wall of the uh, uh, shops. Uh, so I went down, and I found the wall had been repainted. <laughs> So I had to reconstruct, re reconstruct the design of that wing from a set of jigs and uh, specimen ribs. It was all rather rugged when I fared the lines in, but we did get them straight. Didn't make any difference. I'm glad you mentioned the names of some of his uh, other colleagues, particularly Louis Strange, a great man, unfortunately now dead, but one of the greatest men we've ever had in aviation. Tony Fletcher, I'm glad that his name is not forgotten. He was one of my dearest friends. He was Handerside's chief draftsman, and then later, at, uh, when Tony had been down on his luck, he was brought into the British Aircraft Manufacturing Company as a draftsman. When I took over from George Handerside there, I made him my assistant chief designer, and he was quite brilliant. He had his human weaknesses but he was an utterly delightful character and quite brilliant. Although he was a, an Oxford-trained mathematician, he was one of the neatest drafts that I have ever met. <laughs> uh, you also mentioned Talman Richards, and I remember the angular wing. Talman Richards, the last time I saw him, was a curator at the Science Museum. 
And I rather gather that the annular wing was his invention, but uh, I don't know whether this is so. But he was rather claiming it then, and had uh, various patent documents. And you also mentioned Penrody and Courtney. I'm glad their names also are remembered. Uh, oh, and finally, one of the greatest and most delightful of all, Freddie Raymond, a very dear friend of mine. And thank you, Mr. Bruce, for bringing in the Thank you very much for those reminiscences. Well, in that case, I was thinking we must thank you very much, and I hope we shall have some record of this somewhere. Yeah.